We have some breaking news. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again. <laughs> My view has not changed, uh, which is that Russia attempted to interfere with the last election. The Russian effort to influence the 2016 presidential campaign is just one tree in a growing forest. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be special. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm going to open short and sweet today because we just recorded the interview and I pretty much say everything I need to say with my guest. Everything I need to say for now, I mean. My guest is a hero of mine, Garrett Graff, and we're going to talk about Rod Rosenstein, Robert Mueller, and how this all comes out. Really, we're going to talk about the Trump checkmate, or at least guess about it. Because, really, only the shadow knows. I'll be back with Garrett in just a moment. But first, the tweets. I told you so. The European Union just slapped a $5 billion fine on one of our great companies, Google. They truly have taken advantage of the U.S., but not for long. Quote, Trump recognized Russian meddling many times. Close quote. Thank you to Fox and Friends and Fox News for actually showing the clips. The fake news wants no part of that narrative. Too bad they don't want to focus on all of the economic and jobs records being set. The fake news media want so badly to see a major confrontation with Russia, even a confrontation that could lead to war. They're pushing so recklessly hard and hate the fact that I'll probably have a great relationship with Putin. We are doing much better than any other country. The fake news media is going crazy. They make up stories without any backup, sources, or proof. Many of the stories written about me and the good people surrounding me are total fiction. Problem is, when you complain, you just give them more publicity. But I'll complain anyway. Joining us from a studio over at Aspen Public Radio is Garrett Graff. He's in Colorado at the Aspen Security Conference, which is kind of like the Sundance Film Festival of our time, with celebrities like James Clapper and Kirsten Nielsen swanking around talking about election interference and treason. Stars, they're just like us. Garrett writes for a bunch of places, including Wired, where I also write a column I always forget to mention to Trumpcast listeners. This week, I have a piece on Elizabeth Holmes. Garrett is also a biographer of, of all people, Robert Swan Mueller III. He was last on our show when Mueller was appointed special counsel in charge of the Trump-Russia investigation. Thanks for joining us on Trumpcast, Garrett. Oh, my pleasure. 
Um, you know this, but I have to say, and I try usually to be cooler with guests, but I'm just a huge fan of yours. And talk about being on the right side of history. You wrote a biography of Robert Mueller before his name was synonymous with one of the few hopes for our republic. <laughs> um, and you've written so well as my colleague at Wired Magazine about the Mueller investigation. Um, so thanks again for being here. Oh, my pleasure. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it's sort of funny going back and looking at that biography, which came out in 2010. Amazing. Uh, when we sort of thought that Robert Mueller was on the glide path to relative obscurity and done with his career in public service and to realize years later that he's actually more famous and more integral than perhaps he ever was at the FBI. And that you understood the seeds of his, of what motivates him. Um, and, you know, he, he he might be, we don't know, but he might be another sort of Alexander Hamilton in American history, you know, a non-president that, ha, you know, has moral authority and, and, and wears it well and acts exactly. on it with, it, with integrity, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so in your recent piece about the Mueller investigation, this is in Wired magazine called What... Robert Mueller knows, and nine areas he'll pursue next. Um, you cite another figure in the investigation, Rod Rosenstein, as potentially the most interesting figure in it. Why do you think Rosenstein right now deserves our attention? What I find so fascinating about Rod Rosenstein is this is a guy who took what is traditionally one of the most powerful and most anonymous jobs in U.S. government, deputy attorney general, and has ended up, in fact, being sort of a national figure, unlike, you know, all but a small handful of government officials over the last quarter century. I mean, this is someone that most of the country, probably himself included, wakes up every morning and checks Twitter to see if he has been fired. Mm. And he has withstood this incredible attack for a year. He was an, a central figure in obviously the original firing of Jim Comey, sort of the original sin of the Russia investigation that launched the special counsel appointment that was Rod Rosenstein's appointment. He chose Mueller and has now spent the better part of a year, uh, well, actually just over a year, defending Mueller against the White House, uh, Fox News, against uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill. And weathering just this barrage after barrage of personal attacks and attacks on his integrity, Republicans like Jim Jordan uh, and Mark Meadows on the Hill trying to actively impeach him now, you know, something that is, has been reserved for, you know, a tiny, tiny handful of American uh, government officials in 242 years. And like, why is Rod doing that? Well, my theory is that Rod is doing it because he knows how this ends and sort of in, as I say in the article, in a world of foxes and hedgehogs, hmm. uh, Rod Rosenstein is the ultimate hedgehog. He knows how Donald Trump's presidency ends. And what I mean by that is he's the one who is granting the step-by-step -step authority for Robert Mueller to do his investigation. So Mueller is coming back to him, getting approval to expand the investigation, to go in new directions, to go after new targets. He's helping to orchestrate, you know, handing off this part of the investigation, Michael Cohen, to the Southern District in New York, mm -hmm. um, you know, coordinating with the National Security Division to take over the GRU indictment uh, that we saw last week, coordinating with uh, also with NSD on the arrest this week of Maria Butina, 
and uh, that sort of he sees how all of these pieces fit together in a way mm. that we don't know publicly. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I don't have any inside information in this. You know, Rod and I uh, aren't out, uh, you know, having beers together uh, on a Tuesday night. But I can't imagine that he is sticking around in this job uh, with the hopes of being vindicated by hitting Roger Stone with a couple of misdemeanor campaign finance violations at the end of this. You know, I think that Rod uh, has to look at this and say, you know, he has one chance to uh, sort of defend his legacy in history. And that's if they manage to take down the Trump presidency and expose this conspiracy behind the scenes of the Russian attack on the 2016 election. And and so that that's part of why why I just sort of think that uh, there's such fascinating pathos around Rod Rosenstein, you know, every single day when you see him speak in public uh, or sort of go about just the regular job of being deputy attorney general. So uh, Trumpcast has historically been ambivalent, like a lot of the country, on Rosenstein. So, um, you know, Ben Wittes is a frequent guest and, as you know, a friend of James Comey after Comey's firing. He thought that Rosenstein's role in that firing and helping to craft, you know, the very shady, possibly, probably disingenuous pretext for his firing that he might have, um, you know, that he was in the tank for Trump. I mean, I remember thinking the same of H.R. McMaster that day of the firing. Mm -hmm. My disagreements or my conversations about Rosenstein have often taken the form of, is he playing a longer game than we know? Even on the day of that firing, I had people saying, you know, don't judge him yet. Um, Do you think that he knew, even in, in advance of Sessions' recusal, that there was something really important here? I just don't know. And partly that's because I I have sort of lost track now of last spring, sort of who knew what, when, precisely, where, about whom. But, you know, you're absolutely right that that was uh, that day of the firing uh, of James Comey based on Rod Rosenstein's memo. And re- remember at that point, he had been in the job for something like eight days. Incredible. I mean, like almost literally the first thing that he did was write that memo. And uh, Ben Wittes, as you said, uh, um, and many others, and, and myself included, were really taken aback by that. Um, and it seemed like a very dark stain on his legacy And that's partly why I I really think that he must know something big in history shaping at this point that we don't know yet that he thinks will vindicate him. Uh, What is so interesting about uh, the way that he has sort of weathered these attacks is he has made an incredible number of uh, what I would describe as uh, precedent-breaking decisions to give the Republicans on the Hill sort of information about ongoing investigations, the the ongoing Russia investigation, particularly that previous justice departments would have never done. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think he's doing that. Um, and again, this is just, you know, this is my interpretation and analysis. I don't have inside knowledge that I'm basing this upon, mm-hmm. but I think that he he is someone who is looking at this as he can lose short-term battles mm-hmm. because he is fighting this bigger guerrilla war that he knows that he will win. 
Um, and, and I say that also sort of in part because, you know, one of the things, um, and I wrote about this in a, in a separate piece, uh, that is really striking to me is the extent to which the prosecutors in the United States, that sort of the Justice Department uh, and its alumni have become really the only effective opposition party mm-hmm. to Donald Trump. That mm-hmm. Pre Perara sort of talks about the idea that there are sort of three political traditions in American life. There are Democrats, Republicans, and then prosecutors. That mm-hmm. you know, there is no Republican way or Democratic way to try a burglar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, and that <laughs> sort of would say that, but he's, exactly. he's, yeah. he's, he definitely thinks that the judiciary is 12 different branch, 12 branches. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and that, but I get that. Yeah. In, in some ways, like if you want to look for what used to be the core of the Republican ideology in America, you know, a law and order, rule of law, anti-Russia mm-hmm. uh, foreign policy, sort of the the legacy of the Reaganite Republicans is best viewed by sort of the men and women of the Justice Department, current and former, in public life today. Um, yeah, Jacob point, uh, often points out that there was a time in the Clinton administration, pre-impeachment, but also during impeachment, where virtually everyone in his his administration had like a separate prosecutor on him. That that was yes. a very Republican idea that they would need to have their feet held to the fire um, every minute of every day and never get a breath. So leaving the listeners and myself in suspense of what you think would what you think is the victory that Rosenstein intuits or uh, or foresees for himself and Mueller, um, I want to go back to the to the Comey memo for a second, because we had the IG report uh, not long ago. And parenthetically, of course, so much has been happening um, this last week. But I but the Comey memo still seems like a very important moment because I'm affected by your point that Rosenstein was eight days in office when he had to do that memo. He may have had on his mind, having not been included in all the briefings about Russian interference, he may have had in mind what he saw as FBI or Comey missteps during the election. And his reason for the firing might have been his reason for the firing. Yeah. And that the truth of the matter is, there were incredibly good reasons to fire Jim Comey for precisely the way that Rod Rosenstein laid out in that memo on that, uh, you know, at the start of his tenure as the deputy attorney general, that you could imagine a parallel scenario with a normal president, a normal White House, a normal process, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is what has been borne out by that, you know, massive 500-page Inspector General report that Comey broke all sorts of processes and norms and was to a certain extent insubordinate to the Attorney General mm-hmm. in his handling of Hillary Clinton's original investigation and that July press conference, as well as the October uh, surprise letter. And to bring Rod Rosenstein back into this, uh, it's sort of hard to look past the fact that Rod Rosenstein came out on stage at noon last Friday to announce Mm -hmm. the indictment of the 12 Russian GRU officers 
for the attack on the 2016 election a day after that, uh, you know, really embarrassing 12 hour marathon hearing with Peter Strook, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who was the agent who oversaw the both original investigation, both, that right? Led, uh, yeah, both investigations and particularly, uh, you know, the, the one in the, the crossfire hurricane investigation into the Trump campaign. And that sort of not only uh, is there no evidence uh, emerging that there was a anti-Trump conspiracy within the FBI, as Strook said at the hearing, you know, he he could have changed the outcome of the election with a single telephone call at any point in the fall of 2016, and he never made it. Yeah. Um, but there there's actually very good emerging evidence, including in uh, sort of all over that Inspector General report about Jim Comey's behavior uh, in 2016, that there was actually a deep state conspiracy uh, involving the 2016 election inside the FBI, but it was an anti-Clinton one. So what, this run is, you're talking by the about New York the, field, the rogue, the, run the by the, rogue yeah, the, FBI field office in New York. In New York that uh, put enormous pressure on the Bureau uh, and the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General to uh, sort of come clean publicly about the uh, the Anthony Weiner laptop in a way that they might not have mm-hmm. uh, had Rudy Giuliani um, and Jim Kallstrom, former head of the FBI field office in New York, who who founded a nonprofit that was the beneficiary of $1.3 million in funding from Donald Trump himself. Incredible. Um, it, it, which is sort of this incredible set of deep state facts that mm-hmm. if it was on the other foot, you could certainly imagine Devin Nunez and Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows crying from the rooftops about this deep state conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of that was on display in the struck. Uh, testimony and the questions. But it was very interesting in that moment to see members of Congress, not just the sort of floridly ridiculous, you know, Republicans who took center stage, but the whole room facing this, I don't know, I think of it as this like existential crisis around the election that has to do with, one, having a minority president, a minority government, which is something that we have not had to endure on this scale ever, knowing that most of us voted for his opponent. The overwhelming majority of American voters went for his opponent. That's always sat uneasily with us, and yet it's kind of the original sin of this election. And then the second part is growing concerns that we also have had to repress all this time about the simple legitimacy of the election, that if he got this much help from Russians, as we've now seen amply documented in the in the uh, IRA indictments in February and then the indictments of the GRU members on Friday, if he got this much help, like what's to what's to distinguish it from, you know, a Lance Armstrong victory or a uh, 1919 World Series. Like, there's something about his victory that comes with an asterisk now, I think, at least in our uh, in our minds somewhere. Yeah, and, 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 and might, and again, this is what Rod Rosenstein and Robert Mueller know at this point, it might be a much bigger asterisk than what we've even thought of thus far. I, I mean, like, I think that sort of one of the things, and you follow this investigation as closely uh, as I do, one of the things that I keep coming back to 
is every single thing ends up being weirder than we imagined it to be at the start. Yes. That in, in any sort of normal investigation, you end up on some wild goose chases or some dead ends or red herrings or sort of weird things that actually turn out to be entirely innocent and coincidental. You know, yes. oh, why was Don Jr. in that building on that day? Oh, that's where his barber is and he gets a haircut there every Thursday at noon. Yes. Um, and, and that's that's a totally normal part of, you know, any normal investigation. Mm -hmm. And we just don't see yeah, that. It's like this. no I mean, every one, indictment. No one is alibied out. You know, there's right, like, that you there's, just, yeah. That everything sort of ends up being stranger and more guilty and more expansive and more extensive than we had originally intended. Yeah. You say Rosenstein might see what's coming. I know we don't exactly want to want to try to get in the prediction business about what's coming. But do you think it is at all possible that Mueller has petitioned Rosenstein already to waive the regulation that says a sitting president can't be indicted. I'm dubious that Bob Mueller, who has spent nearly his entire adult career in the Justice Department and uh, understands its unique role inside the government, understands it as an institution, and someone who really is an institutionalist, mm -hmm. uh, as he is, would want to take on such a precedent-breaking, groundbreaking rewriting of, you know, sort of the powers of the Justice Department within the executive branch. But at the same time, you know, it seems like we, he has established the four corners of the conspiracy yeah. thus far. And, you know, I'm sort of beginning to uh, think about this in the context of, um, you know, if you're if we're looking at a puzzle that is being assembled in front of us, are we seeing edge pieces or centerpieces? And uh, the GRU indictment last Friday uh, is definitely a cent uh, is definitely an edge piece. You know, that's that's a corner piece. Mm -hmm. That is one of the corners of the conspiracy. Yeah, those um, those indictments signed solely by Robert Mueller. So that's that one, and the yes. I think the February IRA one that are I think tellingly both of of Russians, which suggests yep. that as Anthony Cormier has said on this show, it's possible Mueller has someone bigger than Trump in his sights, or at least yep. um, and not just Trump in his sights. But I think, though, yes, I think the, the corner pieces are definitely those two indictments, um, not the the smaller roll up ones that include Flynn. I mean, Manafort's a big deal, but but um, the pleas seem, you know, for what it's worth, like middle middle pieces to me, although incredibly exactly. useful. And I think that the arrest of the Russian spy this week in Washington, that yes. feels to me like a centerpiece. Yes. That feels like we're beginning to sort of understand the center of this. Yes. Um, and one of the things I'm very focused on is, as you said, you know, we've had these plea deals by George Papadopoulos, Michael Flynn, Rick Gates, and we haven't yet seen, uh, as far as we can tell, any of the evidence gathered from those plea deals, sort of the, the cooperation information 
that Papadopoulos, uh, Flynn, and Rick Gates provided to the special counsel's office. We haven't seen yeah. any of that in the indictments yet. So I have, uh, those I, are going to be, uh, I think, sort of more centerpieces as they come out uh, at whatever point they come out. I have some some uh, off the record that I will now put on the record, or rather between us, Garrett. Um, I, <laughs> so a, a, a very good reporter friend of mine says that um, Flynn listeners, this is speculative, but that Flynn gave up Maria Bustina, that, that Flynn is really w- worth his salt and is pointing in all these interesting directions. But any, anyway, and Flynn is certainly like Manafort a con- and Gates, a connection, an international connection. Um, mm-hmm. But but OK, so here's another thing. Um, the Iranian indictments, if we're talking about Rod Rosenstein, they really interest me. I, I think I might be alone, but I haven't forgotten about those, you know, th- that was a massive set of hacks on academic institutions. And mm-hmm. what do you, I mean, I don't know. What did you make of, what did you make of those? I, I Now I can't remember what month they were. May, maybe something like that. Um, yeah, some, uh, maybe even earlier. Yeah, uh, but, April. Uh, so that in some ways is uh, a very consistent part of the Justice Department's playbook. Um, that when that this is a sort of set of policies and procedures that the justice department um laid out beginning in 2012 2013 that we saw first publicly in the may 2014 indictment of the five chinese pla officials mm-hmm. um for economic espionage yep and it, it's a playbook that they have run uh repeatedly um against other chinese spies against other Iranian hackers and now sort of this newest set this year. And part of, just to sort of tie this back in, part of what makes the Obama administration's paralysis in 2016 Hmm. as the Russia attacks uh, unfolded Mm -hmm. so interesting to me is that it was, again, a breach of the normal protocols and procedures that the Justice Department had come up with, that they, by that point, had a very consistent playbook that they had used against, you know, if if we think of the four major uh, cyber adversaries of the U.S. as Iran, China, Russia, and North Korea, that by the spring of 2016, they had run that playbook Hmm. against three of the four, um, North Korea with the Sony hack, um, Iran with their financial DDoS attacks on the New York financial sector, and then China with the PLA case. Russia was the one country that they hadn't done that against yet. Yeah. And the 2016 election attack, as it unfolded, seemed like the perfect place for them to run the exact same playbook that they had run, uh, you know, the Sony attack or the PLA case against. And they chose not to. That's an an incredibly interesting framing for this, I think, Garrett, because all of us wonder and ask Comey's question of why, when confronted with the news of the of the Russian cyber attack, did Donald Trump express only concern about the P-tape and his own um, reputation? Uh, Why did he not spare a minute for this info warfare attack to that you know that that for the possibly depending on your on your model we were in at some kind of war at least we needed to marshal some kind of defenses and you know the same thing surprises me 
frankly, another to- another third rail topic, but about, say, Bernie Sanders, or, you know, or Jill Stein, other people um, helped, it, you know, and named in the IRA indictments who got who 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 got help from from uh, Russian trolls and hackers. And what I what I sort of like went back to as a metaphor in my own head, I was thinking, you know, if I were a distance runner and someone I learned later that someone had stacked the deck for me, either like the other person threw the race or someone had slipped uh, dope, you know, like put steroids or something in my drink. What would I think of that effort to compromise the winner of this thing, even though it had benefited me? And I really think I would have said, you know, that makes my victory look suspicious. So I don't like it. And in general, I have a commitment to the race being fair. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that it helped me. And that's when Trump and, frankly, Bernie Sanders become somewhat suspicious because the fact that they don't seem shocked by the breach and eager to defend against subsequent breaches in the way you'd expect them to be makes me think that they, at the very least, allowed it, if not, in Trump's case, we're fully part of it. Um, so we're taping this on Thursday, um, and I have uh, another piece actually coming out in Politico, uh, making that that exact point to a certain extent, which is uh, this is one of the reasons that I find it so strange that the Republican Party uh, on Capitol Hill and in the White House is not sort of hair on fire working to secure the 2018 midterms and the 2020 presidential election because Vladimir Putin helped Donald Trump win the presidency. Mm-hmm. Full stop, period. Uh, he, he didn't do that to help the Republican Party long term. He did that to advance his own geopolitical agenda of dividing the West and undermining the legitimacy of open democratic processes. Yes. And so uh, when you look at it that way and when you understand it that way, there's no guarantee that the next nation state that attacks a U.S. election is going to do it on the side of the Republican Party. So, And, and in fact, actually, uh, all sorts of geopolitical evidence that would say that the Republican Party might actually be the next target of a Russia, a China, an Iran, or North Korea coming after our elections. And so if you now realize that this is a major threat, I don't understand why sort of both parties are not, you know, sort of hair on fire, no expense spared, rushing to do everything that they can to secure and lock down every single voting system that they can uh, between now and November. Before I let you go, I know you're at the Aspen Security Conference. I can't believe that's come up again. That's it's time for that again. I remember last year, um, as you were saying before we started, John Brennan and um, James Clapper kind of came out as Trump uh, detractors, uh, not to say alarmists. Um, what's going on there this year? Well, uh, it, you know, obviously it's a huge week in foreign policy here. And so it's been, uh, um, I was joking with people last night, the forum kicked off Wednesday night um, here in Aspen. Uh, and that sort of anyone who spent a second uh, before Monday at noon preparing uh, to ask their questions of their panels or speakers was time wasted uh, because <laughs> the entire geopolitical landscape has shifted and continues to shift. And and what is sort of so weird about being back here is, uh, you know, a year after last year, 
when, as you said, sort of James Brennan or uh, John Brennan and James Clapper did their sort of unplugged tour of Trump criticism. <laughs> right. It's like that Mike festival Pompeo, where Bob Dylan plugged in, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo was here last year as, as CIA director. The conversations are sort of all the same. I mean, uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, uh, in his remarks, uh, and Kirsten Nielsen, the DHS secretary, in her remarks, um, you know, they were both sort of started off by asking this question that is like a, some sort of Groundhog Day moment of, do you still think Russia interfered in the 2016 election? Yeah. Because we're sort of still seesawing back and forth day by day. Does the president think that Russia interfered in the 2016 election? Did he not think that he they interfered? Did he not not think that they interfered? Did, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of what, what round of double negatives are we in today about uh, the Russian election interference? And you said that Nielsen is still... She's still not totally, she hasn't seen the evidence or something. What What is it? What did she say? Yeah, exactly? I mean, that she's sort of still dancing around, you know, was it actually done to help Donald Trump? Right. Um, which is the consensus of uh, the intelligence community uh, and, and something that I think she uh, has not come out and stated yet forthrightly that she has read and agreed with. If you which have is her stunning. Um, if you have her email or signal address, I'm really happy to send her some document cloud <laughs> indictments <laughs> yeah. that are, you know, I found powerfully persuasive. I could even do a capsule summary for her. Thank you so much for being here, Garrett. Oh, it's great to talk My to you. My pleasure. It's I, a great I, chance to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. So that's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced with the help of Mary Wilson. Thank you, Mary. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And as always, follow us on Twitter at RealTrumpCast to keep up with the show. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>